I had a really nice sermon cooking this week from Ephesians 6. That's why it's on the front of your bulletin, that passage from Ephesians 6 on the front of your bulletin. You can look at it, but we're not looking at it. We're not preaching from it. Because Thursday afternoon, while I was at the Willow Conference, a guy said something that just, I just had one of those light bulbs. Everyone in the room saw it. It was above my head. And, and I went, that's what we need to do this week. That's what we need to talk about this week. That, that is going to be the, the best way I know how to bring some resolution, some, some final thoughts you know, on this topic of transformation for us. So today, we're going to do that. Now, you know, during the course of the summer, we've been talking about transformation quite a bit. Um, and, and particularly as of late, we've been talking, and I've tried to, each week to give you an image, you know, uh, something to stay, that stays with you so that, like, if you see it again, you go, oh, I remember we kind of talked about that. I hope that worked. I hope that when you see some of these things, you remember. But so, for instance, you know, we talked about the saw. We talked about that transformation requires that there are certain tools that we use, and we use them the right way so that they really bring about the benefit of using the tool. And that if you use it the wrong way, there's no benefit. You just get exhausted. So in the context of this, we talk about using the Bible, obeying it, and letting the sharp edge of that blade cut into our lives and change us, whereas the back end of that blade just exhausts us. And how many of us are exhausted because we, we try and live out the Christian life without obedience. We try and live out the Christian life. We try to be transformed by being good, and we get at the end of the day and we're just tired and still kind of who we were that morning. Maybe we're nicer people but we're still not transformed from the inside out. Then the other one we talked about, we talked about how we very often take things that are priceless and we trade them off for things that are meaningless and worthless. Beads and baubles. Remember, that's when we did a history lesson on, on $24 for you know, Manhattan and what a quote-unquote bad trade that proved to be on the part of the Native Americans at the time. And then, and then we talked about, um, yeah, if you missed that Sunday, it was a really good Sunday. You know, we talked about um, how we, that part of transformation is taking every thought captive. And so Evan volunteered to prove what that might look like, you know, and how he, in being captive, he was powerless. And so taking all the things that are not in obedience to Christ and holding them captive makes them powerless in our lives. So, and, um, and then last week, we talked, uh, two weeks ago rather, we, t- we talked about um, success and failure in spiritual, in, in our transformation. And we closed the service with two videos. You remember the videos? Anyone remember those videos? All right. And so one of them was Derek Redmond. You, remember, you might remember him. Uh, he is one of those very inspirational moments at the Olympics in 1992 when he uh, you know, tore his hamstring and he falls down on the track and he's limping. He's, he is determined to finish the race. He's limping the race through. His father comes down, comes alongside of him, and walks with him. And we talked about that many of us think that's exactly what Jesus wants to do. He wants to walk with us and help us finish what we're doing, you know. But instead, I offered a second video, and that was the Hoyt family. Rick and uh, the son Rick and his father Dick. Rick um, was born um, with several um, disabilities, has never spoken, cannot walk, cannot use his arms, um, and yet they have participated in something like over 250 competitive matches. And the young man has never done more than sit there. And so in the triathlons, the father runs the race like this. 
he bikes the race also. And then when they do the swimming, the son is put in a raft and the father swims it, pulling the son behind him. And we talked about that really success and failure in our transformation is not depending upon God helping us, it's depending on God doing it for us. And that we are like that young man. And that when we let him do it for us, we begin to become transformed. But when we step out of that chair and we try and run ourselves, we so often, we always fail. We always fail. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. Today, I want to try and find another graphic image that we can talk about that will help us to understand that. And so, um, let me ask you, what would be one word that you would use for transformation? What would be one word? I I posted something about this this morning, and I uh, asked for folks to give me comments on it. And um, so some of the comments we've gotten so far, let me just, you, you think about it and uh, see if you have any comments you want to add to this. These are some of the comments that people have. At, I asked for one word definition for spiritual transformation. So let me give you some of my, the, the input we've had so far. Relief. Loving. Um, Kyle Wright's really agreed with relief, my friend from Texas. Bob from downtown in Philly said transformed. He used the word in the definition, which is a no-no. You're not allowed to do that. Another friend from home said rebirth. Paul Nowalinski said just Jesus. Another friend said others. One word for transformation was others. Don Hill, an old friend from Crossing, said freedom. Mark Sleater said transferred. Another friend used metamorphosis. Now I'll tell you in a minute why that's cheating. That's kind of like using a word in the in the definition also. Another buddy from uh, Philippines said the gospel. Ryan King said restoration. And Brian Minnis jumped in here just the last minute and said fruit. Now, the reason why metamorphosis is kind of like cheating is because the word transformation in the Greek comes from metamorphosis, which is to be changed, completely changed. You were this, and now you're this. So anyone want to add anything to that? Astrid, what did you say a moment ago? Peace, Peace, all right. What is another? Anyone want to add one word? One word definition? Yes, Emma? Say it again. Say it again. New. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. You were speaking English. I just wasn't hearing. All right. (laughs) Debbie? Surrender? There you go. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. Anyone else? Good, good, good. Those are all words I think work. You know, especially at a particular phase of your life, I think, you know. And there's not one word that I think is best. But I, I'm, I'm working toward one word today that we can put a graphic image on it and we can use that as a reminder for what it is. Now, I've got to tell you, the reason why I think graphic images are good is because I'm, I am not creative. You know, the people that I respect the most are, um, are people... These creative types, whether they're authors or musicians or, or, you know, they draw or they paint or they sculpt or something, and, and that they, the concept of what they're going to do, even more so than the skill of painting. But to me, it's amazing when people have this idea and they come up with this idea and then they can bring it out of their head and their heart and they can put it into stone, 
you know, or they can put it onto a, a, you know, a canvas, or, or they put it on the, the page. You know, I'm not that way. I am not that way. I mean, I need a template for everything. I, I, need, I have to look and see, well, how did they do it? And then, and then how can I adapt it to my situation? And, you know, and so a template, like one of these, like I even need a template for those things. Circles and lines. I need a template to do anything like that because I'm just so unskilled at that. So, you know, you, have, you look at this and say, that's what it's supposed to look like. Okay, and let me try and do that over here. And then you look at this and I go, doesn't look anything like it, but it'll work, you know. That's why I think that these, today, what I'm looking for is something that in my mind's eye, when I think about what can I, what is my template for transformation? So that's what we're working for today. All right? Um, matter of fact, let me just tell you, like, I am so uncreative that, like, one time, I don't, there's nothing original in me, and I, it's in my notes, and I have a slide, so I have to talk about this because I was ready to move on. But years ago, when we were remodeling the downstairs, the living room, one time we were at this place where we were trying to pick colors, and Betty and I had stopped into a KFC real quick, and she says, do you like those colors? And like, I even, the living room is done out of a KFC, look, you know. <laughs> the colors, right over here, right over here, you know, there's the gold, and there's the red, and all, right out of KFC, even that's not original, you know. You can steal, beg, or borrow from any place as long as you give credit, all right? So KFC just got their credit, you know? So it's like you just take from some place, you look and you learn from it, and you say, that's how it should look. That's what I'd like for it to look like, you know? We didn't ever get chicken from them, but, you know, the rest of it, it'll work. So, all right, you know, we're going to be in the Gospels a lot this morning. So kind of find your way. Uh, let's start out in Matthew this morning. Actually, I got two. <laughs> I have to confess, I got two references here. I'm not sure which one uh, I want us to be in first. Matthew 16 and Luke 9. So find both of those, and one of them is going to be right. And in these passages, in these passages here, Christ. If we're coming in this story, let me just tell you, let's start in, let's start in Matthew 16, if you found that. And uh, we're just going to walk through the story a little bit. What has just happened in, in chapter 15 here is that Christ has just fed the 5,000. So there's been this amazing miracle has just taken place. And, and people are, are, are he's gaining more and more notoriety. People are knowing him more and more. And so there's a buzz about him. And they come to this place where Christ says, who do the people say I am? They can actually, they come to this place called Caesarea Philippi. In the day Caesarea Philippi, it sits above the Sea of Galilee to the north, um, that would be the northeast a little bit. And it was like the Las Vegas of the day for the Roman soldiers. You could go there and you could worship any god you might have picked up where you might have come from anywhere in the world as a Roman citizen who became a Roman soldier, and you probably had a different God because it was, it was worldwide, in a sense, for the day and time, throughout the Mediterranean. So you could come here to Caesarea Philippi and find your God somewhere built on that wall. That's an artist's artist rendition of what it looked like. And you'll see in there, you'll see in there, um, you know, these little alcoves here. See that one there? And there's a big one there. And see how this is a large one here? I've shown this slide before, so you might remember it. There are all these, these little alcoves throughout the wall here. And they had 
little idols in them and everything like that. And, and you see that there's places to walk up to it and stuff like that. Well, today, what that looks like is all this has been gone now because of earthquakes and, you know, and everything like that. But these, throughout the walls, these alcoves still exist. They're just covering. They're covering these walls right here. There's dozens and dozens of them. And in their day and their time, they held some type of idol, some type of form of worship. So a Roman soldier could come there and go, oh, there's my God. I'll just sit down, you know, I'll pull up a chair here, I'll, I'll burn my incense, I'll do whatever it is that I have to, and they could find a place where they could worship. Not only that, but this is a place that you could come for refreshment. You see, right, right here is where the big, right here is that, right there. And now you see that right below it are these springs and this one here. So it was a very refreshing area. You could come here. And it was, so I say, like I say, it's like the Las Vegas for the Roman soldiers. Christ and his men were coming through this area, and they stopped here, and here they had this discussion. And Christ says to them, he says to them, who do the people say I am? Who, who do they say I am? And as is often the case, you know who answers first? Peter. Peter jumps up and has an answer, and he says, well, this is what the people say. The people say, you know, I mean, this is what I say. And he gives an answer, and he gives the right answer. And in doing so, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so as you follow the story along, a little bit later, the text says that Jesus begins to tell them everything that's about to happen. Matter of fact, in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 25, he begins to say, if anyone wishes to come after me, you know, this is what's about to happen. And if you want to follow me, this is how difficult it's going to be. You know, let's say that he was, he was charting a course, and he says, this is where I'm going. And if you want to come after me, this is what the course is going to be like. You know, he's saying, this is, I'm going up this particular hill, and it is straight up on the edge of the hill. OSHA's not been there, so there are no guardrails. If you fall off, you will die. It is difficult. It is harsh. He goes, this is where I'm going. If you want to come with me, this is what it's going to be like. So he lays out, he goes, you know, if you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up this cross and you've got to follow me. And whoever wishes, if you want to keep your life, this is not the track for you. This is not the trail for you. I'm not your man. But if you want to lose it, come on. And I imagine they'll sit there and went, Huh? I'm not interested necessarily in losing my life. What's he talking about? And I bet you they thought to themselves, let's just keep going and see what it's really like. And so they hang on. They hang on. And so the next thing we find is that Jesus takes three of his closest guys, James, John, and Peter. They go up to pray, and isn't it interesting that they go up to pray, and when they get there, they're praying, and the three guys that he brought up, his good friends, who are going to walk with him, they fell asleep. But they woke up when this cloud appeared, and this, this transfiguration began to happen, and Jesus went from being just like a regular Jewish guy on the top of a hill, to being like, dude, like, brilliance is engulfing them. And they see Elijah, and, they see, and, they, and they're like going, whoa! And the three guys are there. And, and, then they, and then they hear this voice. Now remember, what was the discussion we just had? 
Who do the people say I am? And Peter answered correctly, and I don't even think he really knew what he was saying. I think that's true for us a lot too. Who do the people say I am? Well, you're the Christ. You're, you're, you're the one. And now what they've done is they're on the top of this mountain and now this, trans- this brilliance is happening and they hear this voice and says, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Okay. Now I know who he is <laughs> because God said this is who he is. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And so what happens, flip over to Mark, please, with me. Chapter 10. What happens here is Jesus begins to say, these are some of the things that are about to happen. Ah, you know what, that's, that's the passage. Right. So they, they, they go there, this, I'm sorry, that's the passage of the transfiguration. He begins to tell them everything that's going to happen. And, and, so, and what he does is they begin now to go toward Jerusalem. And he's warning them there. He's saying, I am about to go to Jerusalem where I will be punished and killed. You know, and Peter, once again, steps up in the middle of this and goes, may it never be. We'll never let that happen. And Christ rebukes him because Christ knows this is what he's there for. And so they start on the way to Jerusalem where he's just said, this is where we're going and this is what's going to happen. And, and like children who know that mom or dad or grandmom or granddad is on their deathbed, go into the house and start putting their names on the bottom of the antiques and the china, these guys start having a discussion. Okay, he's, he's leaving, right? And he, I, I think he's going to heaven. I think he'll be there. I, 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 that's what I believe. I mean... Isn't that what he, you heard him say? He's going to be in heaven, right? And he has a kingdom. He keeps talking about a kingdom. And in this kingdom, it's going to be really big. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of power there. Well, I think that I want to be, like, on the left. And John's like going, I want to be on the right. And so here they are. Their leader, quote-unquote, their best friend, quote-unquote, this man that they're following has just said, I'm going to be killed right now. That's where we're headed. And they're like going, huh, well, after he's gone, I want to be on the left and I want to be on the right. And they're just like going, no, 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 I want to be. And they have this debate about them. You read it through the Gospels. They have this debate about who's going to be the greatest. And so this whole thing about his death has just went like this because they're consumed with this. They're consumed with themselves. And they're like going, I want to be the greatest. I want to be on the left. I want to be on the right. And then, you know, they're having this debate about this. And so they go into Jerusalem. They go into Jerusalem. And keep in mind, Jesus says to them in, in Mark 10, 44, But whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. And whoever wishes to be and whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. All right. So 
You are the one. Peter said so. God said so. That much we know. You're going to die, okay? Now that's going to leave some openings, some vacancies in leadership. We'd like to step right into that, okay, Lord? And he's like going, but the one who's going to step into leadership are not the leaders, they're the servants. Now, you, what you notice, you don't see in the text anywhere, is a discussion that follows that says, okay, I'm the best servant. I take out the trash every week. I clean up all the dog poop every week. I clean out the kitty litter every week. I'm the best servant. I'm him. You don't, you don't see that, do you? We don't have that discussion either very often, either do we? So, you know they arrive in Jerusalem. There's the triumphant entry in, verse, in chapter 11 there in Mark. If you want to flip over to John 13 now, John begins to tell us some more of the story. And what's happened is, is that they have arrived in Jerusalem. All the people make a big deal about him coming there for a variety of reasons. They want someone to kick the Romans out. They want someone to feed them fish and loaves every afternoon for no charge, with no work. People are really excited about this guy for all kinds of reasons. But very few of them, if any of them, are the right reasons. And so they've just celebrated him come into town. And as they're coming into town, Jesus says to one of the guys, Go, you know, I've already set up a room for us. I've already arranged for a room for us. Go and find the room. It's called the upper room. You've heard about it, perhaps. You know. And so he, they, they arrive at this nondescript room, this room that really don't know where they're at, although they'll, they'll charge you to take you there and see it in Jerusalem. <laughs> and so... There's this room, and they meet there, Jesus and his followers. And they begin to have this discussion. And beginning in John 13, Jesus begins to unfold and unpack, probably in the, in the most thorough way that we see in the Gospels, what's going to happen and how he prepares the disciples for it. There, in these last hours, he begins to say again, I'm going to die. I am going to leave you. But this thing that he had just said, this thing he just said here about whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, he has made a statement that as a master teacher, he now decides to demonstrate what he means. And so, after dinner, he takes his outer garment off He lays it aside. He picks up a servant's towel. He wraps himself with it. And then he begins to perform the most menial of tasks that one could do in their culture. And he begins to wash their feet. Peter, being Peter again, says, No, Lord, if if you're going to wash my feet, you have to wash all of me. That just just can't have you do this. And the guys are disturbed because he's the leader. He's not the one who should be doing this. But they're not connecting the dots yet. Remember, he told them, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And he's saying, I'm great. And let me show you how great I am. I'm your servant. And he begins to serve them. Now then, all this is leading up to his most humbled, the most humiliating act of service. As he goes to the cross, where he serves all mankind, 
was sacrificially laying his life on that wood to die for the sins of the world. That was a service that he gave on our behalf. That was his ultimate service. That was what he was sent to do. That's how he was sent to serve mankind, was to die on behalf of their sins and make way for them to be restored back to God through belief in Christ for forgiveness of sins. So here he is. He's beginning to wash their feet, and they're confused. And so this is how John records it. John says, John 13, So when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his garments and had sat down again. This is from the Amplified Bible. I just got into that groove this week. And so if you're looking for it to say all these words in your Bible, unless you're using an Amplified Bible, they're not doing that. But in the Amplified Bible, it says, And he sat down again. He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You know, he's trying to connect the dots. Okay, you remember on the way, I said the greatest will be a servant. And now I've just served you. Do you get them connecting the dots? It's supposed to look like something, he says. You call me teacher and master and Lord, and you are right in doing so, for that is what I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, your master, have washed your feet, you ought, he says, it's your duty. You're under obligation. You owe it to wash one another's feet. For I have given you this as an example, so that you should do in your turn what I've done to you. Who is the one who just did this? The Son of God. The Chosen One. We've gone now from listening to Him to watching Him. We've gone now for Him teaching, not just theoretical, but application. Who is this? Philippians 2 says it like this. Philippians 2 says, I mean, just read, that's just an excerpt. Instead, that in the true spirit of humility and lowliness of mind, let each of you regard others as better and superior to yourself, thinking more highly of one another than you do yourself. Let each of you esteem and look upon and be concerned, not just for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this same attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility, who although being essentially one with God in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which made him God, did not think this equality with God was a thing to grasp or to keep, but he stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity so as to assume the guise of a servant or a slave. And in that, he became like men and was born a human being. And after he had appeared in human form, he abased and humbled himself even further still and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even death on the cross. Who is he? The greatest among you will be your servant. Now, it's... Interesting how easily we forget who is in this room. Because, quite honestly, I hang out with Patrick on a regular basis. I'm very willing to give Patrick my time because I like him. We agree on most things, you know? It's easy to do that. I can do that with Jerry. I can do that because, you know, we just like each other and everything like that. Right? The one of you that I don't like in this room, I'm not going to talk about that today. All right? But think about this. In this room among that 12 was the one who betrayed him to his death. And in that 12, when he came to him, he said, 
I'm sorry, I've got to move on to this one. He didn't make up an excuse and say, you know, you really don't need it. I'm, you don't need to have your feet washed. I'll move on to the next one. He didn't say that. He served Judas the way he served John, the disciple that he loved. Peter was in that room. Who, and just a few hours later, would deny him three times. He served Peter the way he did all the others. Matter of fact, you know, you think about it, he served all 12 of them without any distinction because in just a few hours, all 12 of them ran from him. All 12 of them walked away from him. All 12 of them says, I'm not sure who he is. I think I was just hanging out in the garden tonight, you know, and I saw this guy here praying and I just stopped to see if there's a show. I'm good. Thanks a lot, Roman soldiers. I'm on my way. I don't know him. He served all 12, knowing that that's what they're about to do. I don't serve Betty Joe that way. I bet you don't either. And that's what he's called us to. That's his example. What should transformation look like? You know, Romans 8 says this. Romans 8, again from the Amplified Bible, says, we are destined from the beginning, foreordaining them, to be molded into the image of his Son. To share inwardly his likeness. You know, perhaps from your translation, it probably says conformed to the image of his Son. Well, what does that image look like? See, this is where I'm talking about the template. I need a template. I need to know when I'm, supposed to be, when I'm supposed to be conformed or molded into the image of Jesus. I need to know what that looks like. I need to know what I'm looking for so that, you know, you know once in a while I can look and go, you know, no, I don't look like that. You know? So what's that image? You know, is it that? You see that all the time. That's kind of what, when I think about transformation, when I think about what he looks like, that's kind of what I'm always mentally thinking of. I'm like going... I really don't know what transformation looks like. How many of you see Jesus in that? Half of you do. You've seen that before. That's one of those things, if you look at it long enough, it comes out. But that's kind of what I think most of us do with transformation. I don't really know what I'm supposed to look like. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't really know what he looked like. And so that's why that image is the perfect image for talking about not knowing and why we need a good template. Is it like this? You know, is it like a Roma Downey moment, you know? You know, that show where, you know, a dove flies up and God appears and he fixes things? Is that what we're supposed to look like with him? See, it's still, but it's only just an image. It's just a silhouette, you know? Or, or is it like, you know, you know, you've got guys, they've picked up a wooden cross and they've carried it all the way across America and they carry it around the world and all, because that's what Jesus looked like. That's his image, isn't it? That's why I don't think any of those things work for me. That's why I need this thing that I can hang it on, that I can say, that's my template. And so this is my template. This is what I'm going to work with. This is what I'm thinking about and all. It's that. When I think about transformation, for me, I have to define it as servanthood. That the more I find myself serving others, the more I find myself being transformed. 
That would be my coat hanger. That would be my tack on the wall with the picture. The more that I find myself serving, the more I would find myself being transformed. It's, it's an issue of obedience. Now listen, let's not, let's not get caught up in trying to find the most menial tasks to do. You know, like, no one around here has done any foot washing lately, although there are some of us who regularly clean up, you know, the dog dung in the backyard and clean the toilet bowls, but that's not what we're talking about. That doesn't express love. It's not the nature of the task that sets us apart as servants. It's not, the, it's not what you're doing. So it's not that the, the best servant is the one who does the most menial task. It's not that the one, you know, they go out and clean out the cesspool, you know, with their bare hands. That's not the one who is the greatest servant. The, the greatest servant, the greatest servant is the one who is the most self-sacrificing. The greatest servant is the one who is the most self-denying. If I then, your Lord and teacher, your master, have washed your feet, you ought to, it's your duty, it's your obligation, to, you owe it to wash one another's feet. For I have given you this as an example so that you should do in your turn what I have done to you. What did he do? He sacrificed himself. What did Philippians say? He gave up everything that was rightfully his to serve others. The most pure demonstration of transformation would be self-denial. Going back to what he said, deny yourselves daily. Thinking not of yourself, but of others is more important than you. That's kind of like a mashup of all these verses. So, um, denying ourselves daily comes in so many different forms, in so many different ways. So, what is transformed life going to look like? What should my life look like? What should your life look like? Well, we're not all going to be running. We've only got about a dozen toilets in the whole building, so we're not all madly rushing down there to wash them after the service. But what we can do is ask God to sensitize our hearts to the needs of others and deny ourselves and step into their space and serve them. What I think that transformation looks like, what I think that to be conformed to the image looks like servanthood, self-denial, self-sacrificing servanthood. Let's pray. Father, we um, come, we admit our great joy of serving ourselves. We admit our, our relentless pursuit of serving our comforts, our needs, our wants, above all the others. And we confess that to you. But left to myself and my own power, Lord, I will continue to do that. So instead, Lord, this morning, 
we just ask that you that we would surrender ourselves to you and allow you to live through us in such a way in like a Galatians 2:20 where it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and he serves others and helps me to be self-sacrificing Lord help us to take baby steps in serving others in, in obedience to you so we find out how faithful and how true to your word we are, that you are, and how rich it can be to walk with you in that way. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day, folks. We'll see you next week or whenever the next event is. And, and if you want to come up and chat, I'll be here. Thanks a lot.